Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. And I'm your co-host, Matt Prindeville. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. This episode is sponsored by Tandem Coffee Roasters. Working on it since 2012, Tandem Coffee Roasters in Portland, Maine, believes in good coffee and pursuing a future that is free of single-use cups. Reduce, reuse, and spread joy. TandemCoffee.com Hello, everyone. My name is Priscilla Johnson, and welcome to another Indisposable Live. I joined this incredible team at Upstream last month in the new role of Chief Strategy Officer and can't tell you how thrilled I am to be here with you all today. For those of you who aren't familiar with Upstream, we help business, nonprofit, and government leaders ideate, accelerate, and scale reuse and circular strategies. And what a busy and exciting year for reuse refill solution it has been. We've seen tremendous growth, innovations, and new projects getting started across multiple sectors. And so I'm very excited to be hosting today's Indisposable Live event, Envisioning the New Reuse Economy. During today's program, we'll hear from several thought leaders in the reuse movement, including Upstream's very own Chief Solutionaire, CEO, Matt Prindeville, Anita Schwartz of WSP, and Crystal Dreisbach of Don't Waste Storm and Green To Go in North Carolina. We'll also be discussing Upstream's latest paper on the new reuse economy, which just dropped today. And we'll dive deeper into the vision and opportunities to bring reuse refill across multiple sectors. You'll also have an opportunity to submit questions for discussion during a live Q&A in the last 15 to 20 minutes of the program. So to kick things off, I'm so happy to pass my mic to my colleague and friend, Matt Prindeville, who will share a bit more about Upstream's vision for the new reuse economy and how we're pivoting in this very moment. Take it away, Matt. Uh, thank you so much, Priscilla. And I'm just so thrilled to have you uh, with our team. And I just also just want to thank all of you for, for showing up and for being here today. We're so excited to dive in here. Um, so I'm, I want to start by saying that next year is actually our 20th anniversary at Upstream, which blows my mind. And we have had multiple chapters along this journey. And we really started our current chapter with all of you back in 2018. And we felt at this moment that the world needed an organization that was 100% focused on reduce and reuse as transformative solutions to plastic pollution and our waste crisis. But the world looked very different back then, right? There were, most of the brands across the board were opposed to policy. They were highly skeptical of reuse, refill. We had very few uh, large NGOs and institutions engaged. Uh, there were almost no opportunities happening at the state and federal level. We had a couple small but very mighty reuse companies operating, but not much more than that here in North America. And you know, communities and low-income communities, uh, communities of color, low-income communities were being excluded excluded from important conversations happening around the circular economy. But in just a couple short years, 
we have seen a complete 180 from brands uh, around supporting ideas like extended producer responsibility. And brands are now not only supporting this, they're actually putting money into campaigns uh, to pass EPR. We've also seen a complete 180 from the beverage brands on deposit return systems and, and bottle bills. And what this has done is it's really created a whole new landscape for us to operate in. Not only have the brands shifted their positions on policy, many, many of them have also piloted reuse systems, and they are completely open to policy helping to, to fund the build out of this infrastructure. We've also got many large-scale uh, NGOs and institutions involved. There are huge opportunities now at the state and federal level to advance policy and to advance infrastructure ideas. Instead of a couple of reuse companies, there are literally dozens and dozens of reuse companies. We may have close to 100 of them operating here in North America. And we've also seen this big shift um, since 2020 uh, in, in organizations and corporations really starting to prioritize equity and justice. And so the big sea change here is that the private sector is now engaged in a way that they weren't even just a couple of short years ago. And so that hasn't changed our mission. You know, our mission is still to serve leaders like yourselves in ideating, accelerating and scaling circular strategies. But it has changed the level of our ambition. And I think we are excited to put this vision out there on the table of our 30 by 30 vision. We want to see 30% of consumable goods uh, sold in reusable formats in the United States and Canada by 2030. And I want to be clear that this is this is just intended to be a, a conversation starter. We want to hear what your vision is for reuse. And so this is the beginning of programming that we're going to be doing for months and months now into Q2 uh, of, of, of next year around featuring different voices from our community on their visions uh, uh, for reuse. But we're really excited about this vision. We think it's doable. And this has been a galvanizing uh, force for us and our team at, at Upstream uh, to move these ideas forward. And so in order to get to a 30 by 30 vision, you know, we're talking about a wholesale shifting of supply chains for consumable goods and services. And because this is very complex, it's really going to require all of us working together to figure this out and to transform how we consume. And so thinking about how we're going to get there, right, we, we actually have heard from our community that a lot of folks are excited about reuse, but we were still there were still lots of folks that couldn't quite touch it and taste it and feel it yet. And so we put together a series of slides to illustrate what this could look like. And so, you know, we're at 2030 and disposable dining is just a thing of the past. We, we've overcome it. Reuse uh, has has become center stage for things like takeout cups for for to go drinks. Uh, we've completely transformed uh, takeout food and meal delivery in urban and metro areas. Uh, the disposable cup at ballparks and at events is is now a thing of the past. Uh, same thing for your favorite uh, drinks at home. We've been able to bring back the refillable bottle for your favorite beverages. Uh, or you're going to be able to make the, the the types of products that you want at home, especially the ones where you just need a little bit of concentrate and some water. We can get that package, buy it, and use that package for you know for years, if not decades, at a time. Uh, 
the other big question we have is how how much of the grocery store is going to is going to be converted to reusables is it going to be 20% 40% 50% i think one of the things that loop has shown us is that virtually every single conceivable type of product that you would want to buy at the grocery store has been shown to be able to be served in in reusable uh packaging and so that's the front-facing consumer side. On the back side, we're going to need the infrastructure to collect and process all these reusables. And so the, what's already starting to happen is that logistics companies are looking into becoming the modern-day milkman, You know, not just dropping off packages, but also picking up when they're at our doorstep. Uh, we're also starting to see this, and Crystal's going to get into this later. And this is her presentation is going to blow your mind of you know uh, recycling facilities starting to adapt and change so that they can accommodate reusables. Uh, for sure, we're going to need systems that are able to accommodate the the financial incentives and things like deposits to ensure that consumers are are participating and that those containers wind up where they need to be. And so, return to source systems like like Clink's uh, bag drop system, which is tied to accounts, which makes it easier easy for consumers to get their deposits back is also going to be a critical part of this infrastructure. And we're going to see kiosks cropping up in street corners, park, parks, uh, and, and in office buildings, especially to help enable this reuse in food service to mainstream across cities throughout the country. And the big kicker here for the consumer especially is that none of these innovations required you to bring your own anything. The companies that are profiting from selling us products just transformed the way that we consume and they've made this the default way for how we get these products. And so thinking about, again, what this means on, on the back end for, for the companies, once we've collected it from the consumer, it's the same process. It doesn't matter if it's a Coke bottle or a shampoo bottle or a to-go container. It's about collection, logistics, processing, washing and sanitizing, and refilling and restocking. And Anita's going to get deeper into this in her presentation, which is also going to blow your mind. But you know, just thinking about how we do this at scale, well, this is already done at scale all around the world. I mean, 17% of Coke's products worldwide are done this way. 34% of Anheuser-Busch InBev's products um, are done this way. It's really about shrinking these massive single-use supply chains down to these reuse service models where we make the package once and we cycle it as many times as possible um, in the region. And so breaking it down, you know, simplifying it to the idea of remaking packaging as a service and not a product. And to be clear, like we believe that this is absolutely going to require both bottom-up community solutions as well as reimagining and reorganizing supply chains for consumable products. And so getting into to our roles in this process, you know, we really see our core roles as being con conveners and facilitators and bridge builders. We want to continue to grow this amazing community uh, of reuse solutioneers across all these different sectors. And we want to learn from you. What are, what's the kind of research? What's the content that would be useful to you in ensuring that you have success in the reuse initiatives that you're involved in? So content creators, knowledge curation is, is the second piece. And then being solutions catalysts. Uh, working with you to and, and developing partnerships to identify and develop projects, initiatives, and tools that can help make this vision a reality. And so to close, you know, I think what what for us, progress for the planet is really about reducing the extraction, the energy, and the pollution required for human needs and desires. And you are the folks that are out there on the ground that are working to co-create this, this future and, and make this vision a reality. And our job, we are here uh, to support you. So thank you for being a part of our community, folks. And uh, I look forward to the conversation with Anita and Crystal.
Matt, that was fantastic. Um, you gave us a tremendous vision, uh, 30 by 30, uh, upstream at 20 years. That's wonderful. Uh, I'd like to introduce our next panelist joining us today, Anita Schwartz. She'll be giving an overview of the infrastructure and that vision. She's the practice leader for the Sustainability, Energy, and Climate Change Group at WSP, which is one of the leading environmental consultancy groups in the world. In her current role, Anita and her team support Fortune 500 clients, NGOs, and the public sector to embed a just and equitable transition to a circular economy and consults with various organizations on waste mitigation, packaging, redesign, and logistics improvements to advance material efficiency and carbon avoidance. Anita is going to share a short presentation on what she's working on at WSP. Welcome, Anita. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Priscilla, for the introduction. Thank you, Matt, for laying out the vision of what we're expecting to see in reusable packaging over 2030. And I thought that the paper that has been dropped today was a really great way of being able to spell out the different formats of reusable packaging and the policy levers that are going to be necessary to be able to enable that. What I wanted to talk a little bit about is how uh, packaging is one part of the acceleration towards circularity. And the other part is also being able to collect and move materials as well as products. So when we look at the reverse logistics nodes that exist today, a lot of them are really sort of embedded around <clears throat> collection of electronics as well as e-commerce. And so being able to leverage this type of already existing reverse logistics infrastructure, and then tying that into the packaging aspect is where there's an opportunity to create economies of scale. If we look at the value of lost product that is in the market today, um, this statistic from uh, the National Retailers Association is $761 billion of lost retail goods last year. And that represents about 16% of e-commerce returns. And that also represents a lot of lost capital as well as a lot of lost carbon. And so there's a tremendous opportunity for us to be able to link these different uh, products as well as packaging, as well as materials into these reverse logistics nodes to be able to maximize the efficiency of reverse logistics and the infrastructure as well to support it. So I wanted to walk through just a vision of what that might look like in the future from an average Jim's perspective. So Jim needs to return his e-commerce t-shirt, a refillable shampoo bottle to his favorite CPG company, um, some expired batteries, some textiles. He's changed the curtains in his house and he wants to recycle his curtains. He has a beer bottle that's going for refill to his local brewery and a coffee cup that he got at his local cafe that he wants to um, get back for reuse as well. So there are multiple nodes of being able to collect from the consumer perspective. He can have home curbside collection for all of these different components. He could be on the go and have to return his coffee cup and be able to return that at a kiosk. Or he has a lot of things that he wants to collectively return and can go to a centralized facility. Or he has those few favorite things that are you know, from his retailer that he wants to be able to get back, like his shampoo bottle um, that he can take back to his retail store. After he's 
taken all of these materials back and he has triggered this reverse logistics node, we have a local infrastructure capability. And that local infrastructure is really thinking about how do we get that localized refill and sanitizing done within the region to be able to create a broader hub and spoke model. So starting at the local level, um, the beer bottle would be sanitized and refilled and the to-go uh, coffee cup would also be sanitized and redistributed within that locality. The other materials that Jim's trying to return, like his e-commerce t-shirt, his CPG shampoo bottle, his batteries, his textiles, would all go to a more regional infrastructure hub, which would be a circular economy hub. And there we would try to maximize the existing infrastructure that exists. So looking at the material recovery facilities that we have for common recyclables, being able to leverage that existing infrastructure and then add onto it, adding textiles and sorting for textiles into the same process or location, as well as um, organics or composting capabilities. And the reason being is that we really wanna be able to maximize reuse at retail level. So if we have grocery utilizing reusable packaging, this is an opportunity to take this to a regional infrastructure, depackage, sanitize, and redistribute. So these co-located facilities like the sanitizing, retailed return goods where you can have your distribution network. So they have all of the um, nodes of how these materials and products get redistributed today. This exists. And so returning products to vendor, returning products for resale or liquidation or donation, identifying repair and refurbishment, these systems already are in existence. It's just being able to leverage where they are in conjunction with other infrastructure to maximize the ability to process these things collectively. And then lastly is e-waste and compliance. And again, thinking about the value of these materials as they're going through the reverse logistics model, where we find a lot of value is in electronics and the materials that are, comprise um, consumer electronic goods. And so being able to couple that, uh, the value of those materials with packaging and with other materials really creates that economy of scale. So from there, we think about it more broadly. How do we get these materials from a reverse logistics node into the forward supply chain? And really it's kind of walking through that process. We have the primary points of collection from the consumer perspective um, we have local infrastructure, and that can expand. I mean, I, I gave a few examples here around reusable cups and beer bottles, but we can also look at it from building construction materials as well. So trying to keep, again, materials, products, and packaging in play the longest. From our regional infrastructure perspective, again, it's that, it's that circular economy hub um, in co-locating some of these, these different types of facilities. And then lastly, from the circular economy hub, all of that material is returning back into the forward supply chain. So whether that's CPG refill, whether it's in forward inputs as materials um, and reuse for materials, or if it's the recycling and it's going to a global commodity market, or if it's going to product redistribution because we have a product that is being sent back to an OEM original equipment manufacturer. So these are all different ways in which we would be able to kind of follow the value chain. But to make this all work, we all have to be talking the same language. And that's where digital continuity and infrastructure is going to be necessary. 
so that we can have the right disposition matrix associated with the product. And the consumer can trigger that this product is coming through the value chain on the reverse side. So I wanted to give a quick example of what this might look like. This is in Suzhou. This is an industrial park that exists today. Um, China has been working on this type of infrastructure model for quite some time. And there's really started around industrial waste specifically, but they've now cascaded that out to a lot of different industries and sectors. And so this particular industrial park sits, if you look, right in the middle of a city. And so it really drives the efficiency around transportation and infrastructure to be able to maximize recovery of materials and keep them in the supply chain. So that's, that's all I had. Thank you very much. Hey, Solutioneers, are you ready for the holidays? If you're looking for a great way to give back while also saving on gifts you feel great about this holiday season, we've got the solution for you. Right now, when you donate any amount to Upstream, you'll unlock exclusive discounts and promos to a variety of reused businesses in our 2022 Holiday Shopping Guide. From home and beauty products, to gear for kids, to B2B offers, and more, you don't want to miss out on this exciting offer. If you're curious about what's included, just head on over to our donate page to find the Holiday Shopping Guide. This offer is available now through December 30th. So head on over to upstreamsolutions.org slash donate to gain access to these discounts today. Not only will you be giving back to support our work in the reuse movement, you'll also save on goods and services that are helping us accelerate the transition to a circular economy. From the Upstream team, thanks for all your support and happy holidays. Thank you, Anita. That was truly amazing. You gave us the actual oper operationalization of the vision that Matt provided. So I'm so excited now to be introducing Crystal. <laughs> Crystal Dreisbach is a visionary founder and CEO of Don't Waste Derm, a nonprofit organization in North Carolina whose mission is to create solutions that prevent trash. She's also the founder of Green2Go, a community-wide reusable takeout container service, and has also been pioneering reuse solutions within the recycling industry with a recirculation project, which she'll be talking about in just a moment. And fun fact, Crystal was also awarded the 2021 Activist of the Year at last year's Upstream Reusies. So welcome, Crystal. Thank you so much for being here today. Take it away. Thanks, Priscilla. Thank you for that great introduction. I really appreciate that. Um, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, this is my favorite topic. Don't Waste Durham is a nonprofit located in Durham, North Carolina, whose mission is to create solutions that prevent trash. And we do that in three different ways, one of them being circular economy innovations, of which we have three that we've been operating since 2017. And I think um, like many places around the country, you know, there are reuse systems is probably uh, in older graphic, there's probably hundreds more now. Um, but these are very important experiments, but they do test small specific models. Um, what they what this experience has done for Don't Waste Durham is in testing this, these small specific models that we've been doing, um, they have overwhelmingly validated uh, what we needed to begin, what I'm going to talk about, the recirculation project. Um, and those uh, 
Those validations include that our cities must be designed for reuse to be a societal norm, not an opt-in situation, not uh, having a reusable alternative sitting there next to a disposable, but the default. And two, that infrastructure for the recovery processing redistribution is the absolutely critical piece to realize the big scale vision. And we have very strong opinions over here in Durham about what that could look like and the potential impacts. So in driving back from Circularity 19, back in 2019, uh, our team had an epiphany. Um, we're look, looking around at all of these um, standalone reuse systems all around the United States and the globe. Very exciting, but we said, the next level is we've got to figure out how to make this a societal norm. And we need to figure out now, we need to start the conversation what does our city need to look like? What, if we were to realize this vision, what does our city need to look like to accommodate so much reuse? If Durham was to go entirely reusable. So we had this crazy idea and we actually went ahead and started implementing it. So in 2019, our hypothesis is that we could harness the existing infrastructure of the recycling industry and test what it would be like for these existing bins, routes, trucks and the MRFs to see whether can they um, also collect and process reusables and really assist in a sort of a, a accelerated way, a societal shift toward reusables. And we thought here we are, uh, a little bitty nonprofit in Durham, but what was great is that the city of Durham, the county of Durham and our local City of Durham Solid Waste Management and our local MRF were willing to uh, work with us to ideate and test this. And so indeed we did. In 2019, um, we took a bunch of different types of reusable packaging and we added RFID and Bluetooth to each of them um, just as a way to uh, be able to find them again later. And what we did was we co-mingled them into the single stream recycling bins at curbs in uh, the residential areas of Durham. And we followed the trash trucks journey uh, all the way to the transfer station and onto the um, recycling uh, MRF where they were dumped on the floor and then scooped up and put into the hopper and up the conveyor belts uh, for the usual recycling sorting. And the recycling machinery is, uh, I like to say, a gauntlet of torture for reusables. Uh, so what we found when the results were that as they reached the top of the conveyor belt, we, we mounted an RFID scanner, that large white thing you can see in the picture, which would alert the first four hand sorters that a reusable was coming down the line, and they simply picked it out and set it aside. So the very, very basic premise of this first experiment was to see, can they make it to the facility and can they be sorted off the line? As a very basic uh, thing, we wanted, we wanted to test that hypothesis. And what we found uh, was that we were able to recover 96% um, of the containers and that they were all successfully uh, sorted off the line. So what does this tell us? 
if we were to harness the existing infrastructure of the recycling uh, industry, um, recovery of the reusables is indeed feasible at a very basic level. And all of us know design modifications would be absolutely necessary. Uh, clearly, we don't want reusables to go through a gauntlet of torture. And what was especially satisfying about this first pilot was that the MRF and the City of Durham Solid Waste um, leadership sat around with us afterward to, to um, ideate and come up with potential solutions for the way the recycling industry and the hauling and the collection would need to be modified so that this could become a reality. In fact, the City of Durham Solid Waste folks got so excited and said, you know, we are planning to design our own MRF. What if we were the first MRF in the country to also include wash sanitization and redistribution of reusables right here in our facility? And of course we support that. So phase two in 2020, we did a value chain analysis and the conclusion was that there absolutely exists um, a financially sustainable model for materials recovery and redistribution at a certain volume. So this past summer, we simulated being hauling and a MRF and to do what was next, which was to assess the potential volume in a city, sort of in answer to that value chain analysis. We just gave a presentation yesterday um, I would love for anyone who's interested in those results to see that. It's on our Facebook and Instagram. It was live streamed, but now it's recorded. And right now we're doing a very in-depth end market analysis. So we're working with the producers um, of products who would like their packaging back and assessing uh, how much money can we make selling this reuse glass. So the reason we picked glass is because as we all know, glass has a fairly low market in the recycling industry, but reuse glass has a very high um, value potential. And this is exactly what we're finding in our experiments. So we're gonna continue to experiment and we're actually now um, designing implementation, what it would look like on a city scale. And um, this has been absolutely wonderful because we all had this in our minds but until you get up and actually design pilots to do it, um, you'll never know. And now we know some stuff and we're very excited about that. That is, um, you know, has helped us formulate uh, what entities should support uh, this type of infrastructure financially. Um, what are the key roles of government and what is needed um, otherwise to support something like this? Is the recycling industry the right um, industry to um, build upon to make to accommodate reusables? We think that is definitely a possibility. The MRF that we worked with was very excited about the potential for additional revenue streams. So we asked them, how much would it take for you to actually do this? And they said, well, we need to compete with the space and the uh, value we get from aluminum. Um, so it would have to be about this much, this much, this much. And then in the value chain analysis, we analyzed how much would producers, retailers, uh, large manufacturers pay to get those materials back. And it was overwhelmingly 
there is a business model, business case for this. And there's a hundreds of billions of dollars wrapped up in packaging. It's a huge market. Um, we are now designing a very large scale washing sorting facility. And we are taking on schools here in Durham and schools across the nation. Many of them are still using disposables. If we switch our local school district to reusables, we will be um, preventing almost 9 million at a minimum, 9 million disposable items per school year, just with one school district. Um, so we are building now the capacity to accommodate that in our nonprofit, um, but we're showing, we're giving the world a model that can be um, adopted by local government. We have many, um, many opinions about the role of government, but while we wait for government to take on the right thing, we ourselves feel um, compelled to do it and model it and share the results. Um, this is a little mock-up that I made myself just to show you, give you a, a flavor and the feeling for the types of structure I would like to see. Um, yes, we have return stations across the city. Don't waste Durham does. We have collection of businesses. We have our hub facility where we also can take in the reusables to process and redistribute. But here in our recirculation project, it is the curbside collection that we're really emphasizing. And we have come to believe strongly that that is the next, um, that's the next step. And whoever does it, we don't care, but until they do, we're gonna do it. Thank you, Crystal. That was excellent. Um, you heard from Matt, the 30 by 30 vision. You heard from Anita. And where else would you hear about reverse logistics and infrastructure? That was fantastic. Thank you. And finally, and certainly not least, Crystal delivering a presentation on the nuts and bolts of how this gets done. She's on the ground every day, folks. So we really appreciate all those presentations. We've just got a few moments for a panel discussion, and then we're going to turn it over to the audience for Q&A. Um, I know you all had some questions for each other. Uh, your presentations are linked, your ideas are linked, going from the vision to the infrastructure to the how you can do this on the ground, Crystal. So I'm going to start with Matt. And if you all if you had a question for either Anita or Crystal, um, I'm going to uh, turn it over to you. Awesome. Thank you, Priscilla. Yeah, I mean, I love your presentations, guys. I mean, there's a reason why I wanted you to come on this on this panel with us because I'm just so excited and enthusiastic about the vision and the work that you're doing to create this vision in the world. Um, I think I want to just start with a question for Anita, and I'm curious about this circular economy hub model. Like, I've, I've got, I feel like I, I get the the local city model, and I, I love that illustration. But tell us, tell us a little bit more about what that circular economy hub model looks like, and how you see, you know, those different um, business interests coming together to cooperate around around building it. Um, thanks, Matt. I. I loved Crystal's presentation about the reality of what happens in the MRF. Um, and I think that that's a really good example of how we need to leverage existing infrastructure to be able to enable further adoption of different types of models that are not single use oriented. And so when we think about that as an example of kind of leveraging a MRF 
to be able to recover reusable packaging. That's one way that we might be able to kind of accelerate some of the reusable infrastructure necessary. The ideal state is that we're actually centralizing these logistics nodes, right? So that we create a hub and spoke model. We we um, are not incurring as much of the transportation impact of moving material all over. And, and instead we're consolidating and keeping supply chain localized. And so when we look at it from a concentric circle perspective of you have a local infrastructure um, capability, you have a regional infrastructure capability that might connect with another region where there is ongoing forward logistics or forward supply chain opportunity. Um, it's, it's really built off of an idea around industrial symbiosis. And so if we have the opportunity to do materials exchange, but then minimize the, um, the transportation impacts is really, I think the, the idea behind that circular economy hub and having that hub and spoke model perspective. Um, I, I think ultimately, you know, it's a, it's a long term or long, you know, <laughs> future vision um, in terms of getting companies to co-locate together to be able to do that. But there are roles that policy can have in that. There are roles that government can have, cities and municipalities, especially in incentivizing companies to co-locate. Um, and we've seen that model actually be successful in driving co-location and opportunity for them to find symbiosis together. And that might be not just material exchange, but then also sharing um, uh, other resources. So if they are sharing renewable energy resources, sharing waste services resources, sharing water resources, there's a lot of opportunity there to expand beyond the actual physical material. Excellent, thank you so much, Anita. And Crystal, um, so I have a question for you. Uh, you've seen the vision, uh, you know what it's like on the ground. Uh, you've looked at this reverse logistics model. Um, where do you think we have the biggest gap at this point in terms of implementing on the ground? And then we'll go straight into uh, audience Q&A in one minute. So I think a lot of people ask, um, you know, it's gonna take a lot, a huge amount and a long time and a lot of financial resources to, you know, adapt a recycling industry to um, accommodate reusables. Um, so while we work on that process, I think that what is needed are these very robust um, models that build on everything we know, and perhaps they happen privately before, you know, municipalities really take this on. Um, but I think what a big gap is really the government taking a really big role in this. So one of the things that we see in every city um, in the United States is this sort of definition of solid waste management. And it's generally mitigation, right? It's collecting trash and recycling and just making it disappear out of sight. But management also includes the prevention of waste and the recirculation of reusables. So Prevention is just as important, if not more important than mitigation. So I'd really like uh, to support them in evolving out of these sort of unhealthy status quo structures to expand the definition and their role. And policies that support encourage reuse and recirculation in industry, even more in industry, but even more ideally uh, lead to requiring it. 
of industry. Um, I don't necessarily believe from demonstrated past evidence that an opt-in model for industry is going to work in making the impacts that the planet can't wait for. So I think this government role is a big gap that I don't think we talk about enough. That's an uh, excellent lead in actually to um, one of the, if not a couple of the questions that we're receiving from the audience. Uh, and those questions actually are around trade-offs um, for the reuse economy. Uh, one question uh, coming from Karen was about the GHG emissions. Where is the accounting for that? Uh, is it baked into any of the models, maybe Anita, that you've seen? Um, I mean, I, I think that when we look at the life cycle of a single use item and we look at the embodied carbon in the materials that are ending up in landfill, there's a, a way to be able to balance that uh, equation and balance the accounting sheet of that uh, with reuse and being able to do recovery of those products, materials, and packaging. Um, I think that the greenhouse gas emissions uh, in regards to transportation is very minimal. If we think about the greenhouse gas emissions involved in extraction, manufacturing, delivery, and utilization, um, and then the lost embodied carbon when that material goes on its one-way direction to disposal. So I, I do think that there is um, a, a definite opportunity to be able to do that kind of modeling and be able to evaluate these different different models as they come into um, reality. I mean, obviously this is all visionary at this point, and, but we do know, and we, we do have the data to be able to support that single use is more impactful uh, in terms of carbon emissions than reuse. Thank you very much, Anita. Does anyone else have, um, yes, Crystal, go right ahead. I gotta pipe in on this one. I think um, we have got to break down this misperception that the washing and the driving of um, reusables is somehow a trade-off because it is simply not the case. Um, every impact calculator, including the one that we built ourselves with the help of Duke University, um, comparing the water and electricity usage, the carbon emissions, the landfill volume, comparing different disposable materials versus uh, reusable, no matter how you shake it, it uses a fraction of the water and electricity. And it uh, it is at least 80 to 90% fewer carbon emissions. It's not just carbon neutral, it's carbon reductive. And, um, you know, what, what we're missing is, and anyone who's interested in this carbon um, question, please look at our slides from our live stream yesterday, which reported on um, a reusables lifetime in carbon savings. And it specifically goes into these calculations. So we did everything from, um, you know, what is the carbon output of a diesel-fueled uh, ship from a Chinese port um, all the way here. So there's manufacturing carbon. You manufacture a million things to be used once, over and over and over, that is so much more carbon emissions than to circulate uh, something you made once and circulate it uh, locally or hyper-locally. Um, the carbon emission savings are massive in the 90% range. 
Thank you very much, Crystal. And I'm getting a couple of questions from uh, Sharon and Jamie. Uh, we'll switch over to the funding side. Uh, Sharon's really interested in who's going to pay for this system. And Jamie's wondering from a nonprofit perspective, who would support um, setting something up in his home state of Colorado? Anyone like to take that one? I'm, I'm happy to, to chime in on, on this. You know, I think that when when we look at the way it's been done to date, you've had entrepreneurs and innovators like Crystal that have been trying to figure out how to do this with, you know, sm small amounts of, of startup and seed funding from uh, venture capital or from, uh, you know, from government grants. I think to get to scale, like we need the infrastructure that um, we've been talking about today, and that's not going to come from you know from from seed from seed money and, and seed funding. It's really going to come from uh, investment. We think there are probably two big pots of money. Uh, you know, one is infrastructure funding from government. So looking at at how the the federal infrastructure funds flow to states and flow to cities and then flow into projects. And the other is extended producer responsibility. I mean, there's no question that EPR really should be a tool to support a circular economy for packaging that prioritizes waste reduction and reuse ahead of recycling. We should follow the waste management hierarchy. So that doesn't mean that EPR isn't, you know, we don't think that it's just going to suddenly <laughs> change from what it's been, which has been a recycling funding tool. But we want to make sure that the governing legislation, and for all the policy folks that are listening, we want to make sure that the governing legislation prioritizes is reuse in the legislation so that that money can be used to help build uh, reuse infrastructure. And so, you know, again, that slide that I, I had earlier in the presentation about all of us coming together to figure this out, that needs to happen. This is hard. So it's easy to just follow the default path that, you know, we know how to do EPR for recycling and we know how to invest in MRFs and, and make recycling better. To build reuse is really going to take a lot of innovation. It's going to take a lot of conversations and a lot of people coming together around it. And so, you know, the funding mechanisms at scale, I think, just to sum up EPR uh, and government infrastructure funding. We could also siphon from solid waste budgets because, you know, if you're investing in reuse infrastructure, you're you're also reducing your solid waste costs. So getting, you know, city government officials to think that way and think about the line items differently is key as well. Well, that was excellent feedback. And, and hopefully that answers your question, David and Lucy. David, you question, had a question about incentives. And also um, there's a question about policy. So hope it, hopefully that answers the question about future proofing it, including um, the reuse uh, requirement in, in future policies. So thank you for those questions. I'm gonna switch gears now. Um, Judy has a question about uh, large logistics companies and whether or not they're best place to establish hub and spoke infrastructure? And are they also in the position to set standards? I think I'll, I'll cue that over for you, Anita. Thank you. Um, that's a great question. And I I would say that there, the infrastructure exists, right? So uh, there are return centers, there's um, you know not just the forward distribution centers, but there are also the reverse return centers that exist today, both for 3PLs as well as for retailers. And, and oftentimes 3PLs are actually, or third-party logistics providers are actually managing those return centers on behalf of retailers or other manufacturers. And so this, like I was saying earlier, this type of reverse logistics nodes and this type of infrastructure exists 
today is being able to build upon what exists slowly by, you know, step by step and being able to integrate different opportunities within that reverse logistics nodes. Um, so yes, I do think that, you know, third-party logistics providers have a tremendous role in this um, uh, and, and embedding this type of a system um, because they already are and they can help drive additional opportunities like curbside collection or, um, you know, collection from centralized facilities at a local level. In terms of standards, um, I think ultimately the system and the way that the system has to integrate is going to be a critical linchpin in how efficient the system can be. So just if you think about it this way, just as much as we have data for from extraction to manufacturing, to product creation, to getting it on shelf, to point of sale, we need to have the same continuity of information from the consumer trigger post-use all the way back to when that material packaging product is ready to be in the forward supply chain again. So the data continuity is what's really lacking. And I think the standardization is around that data language so that we're all speaking the same language <laughs> um, and able to communicate with one another about where this widget is gonna go. That's really good feedback, Anita. I'm going to um, include Rita's question as a follow-up on scaling up reusables. And her question is specifically, uh, scaling up reusables that are meant to get back to the OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers and international supply chain. So how would that look? I mean, this is something we've already talked about. Um, is it similar to the localized hub vision? So I'll stop there and let you all answer. So, yeah, so it would be um, very similar to this hub and spoke model, right? So let's just, in a scenario, there's a, a pallet um, that an OEM is using and it's in an international supply chain and that reusable pallet needs to get back to the manufacturer abroad and is being utilized in the United States. The um, Wherever that pallet is going to be scanned, and said, okay, we're done with this. It needs to go back into the supply chain. It might then traverse through a hub and spoke model. It might go from the manufacturing site in uh, Idaho to a consolidation hub um, near there, maybe on the West Coast. And then from the West Coast, it would go back into the supply chain. But there's a continuity of information. Once that pallet is scanned, then it knows, okay, I have to go and take this over to this consolidation hub on the West Coast so it can get on a ship where it's gonna get scanned. It's gonna get scanned at the port, wherever its destination port is, and then it'll be scanned again to go back to that original manufacturer's uh, facility, um, wherever that might be. So again, it's, it's the disposition matrix that has to be very um, fleshed out and the digital continuity to be able to enable that disposition matrix. You know, from a smaller on the ground perspective, uh, you know, the recirculation project, we have a warehouse where we're collecting the reusables. So, we're, uh, you know, like a MRF, we're sorting them and preparing them for redistribution. So this has made us do a lot of thinking. One is a conversation for another day, which is the standardization uniformity of packaging. You know, do we uh, redistribute the same type of packaging to multiple types of manufacturers and retailers? Or do we um, collect the 
specific packaging that those or materials that those uh, manufacturers and retailers need back. So we're trying to look at, you know, without reinventing the wheel, look at existing systems that we all know. One of them is an online sales platform. Like mm -hmm. we know we're experimenting with what if we simply become an alternative packaging store such that our warehouse collects all at work, you know, we can make money off of other people's things that they don't want. So we're putting them in our store, they go up online and people can say, yes, I need, you know, a hundred pallets of 10,000 of that, click, and then those get shipped to them and they buy it back. Or, um, you know, is there some, is there some other uh, model that we can use? So this can be, um, this is one methodology of the redistribution back to the um, manufacturers and retailers that it brings up a lot of questions and um, the experiments get very interesting and we'll be able to we'll be able to show what types of things work and don't work. Thank you, Crystal. And there's just time for one more question. I'm just going to summarize um, what some of our listeners are saying. Um, they're talking about zero waste. Um, they're questioning whether or not we should start implementing ordinances on zero waste. That's one question. And we also had a question around um, just the nuts and bolts of things, Crystal. So there's a number of questions for you. And I guarantee you, audience, we're going to get back to you. If not in this uh, live stream, we'll be able to email you the answers. So I'd like to really kind of hone in on this zero waste strategy. Uh, from a policy perspective, do you think that we should have um, these implemented in cities? I'm I'm happy to jump in here. I mean, yeah, no question, right? And and so a lot of folks in our community and probably many of you on this call have been involved in helping to establish uh, reuse coalitions in cities. These are coalitions that are tapping into existing folks that are working on zero waste and working on recycling and other uh, initiatives in cities and, and coming together to kind of build out the next big thing, which is reuse. And so you might have a zero waste plan or you might uh, have... Um, um, uh, you know, you, you've you've built out, uh, you got some plastic bag bands and things like that. You know, reuse is a is a long term project, as you can hear from the panelists today. And so, you know, a lot of the work is going to be involved in having people come together in communities and figuring out how to do reuse at scale in their city. It's it, there are some things that are going to replicate from city to city, region to region, and there are also going to be things that are going to be unique to the to that place and to the folks that are involved and the the businesses engaged and so on. And it really starts um, with conversations and with organizing. And so, you know, we've got all kinds of resources for folks that want to start reuse coalitions. Uh, we've got all kinds of policy resources for model policies and ways that you can help uh, bring reuse to your community and start to build out this infrastructure. Um, and we're also going to, we're in the process of reorganizing our website to make all that information easier for all of you to find as well. So stay tuned for that. That's coming soon. Um, but yeah, local uh, community zero waste policy, zero waste plans, building reuse and reuse infrastructure into city zero waste plans is, is incredibly important. And then again, a, a lot of these initiatives that are taking place, they're starting with these community conversations, right? A lot of people are familiar with the Reuse Seattle project. And that was, you know, city government officials coming together with community leaders, with NGOs, with consultants, with and, and, and building a project together and finding out how to fund that, right? So that's a great blueprint for other communities around the country to follow in, in, in making this vision a reality.
Matt, this panel was very hard to follow. This was an incredible discussion. I want to thank you for uh, Anita, Crystal, Matt, for your input. And I want to thank all of the participants for coming on board to listen to our live stream today. So I just have a couple of plugs before uh, we finish up. I First of all, I want to make sure that you know that we have released our latest paper, The New Reuse Economy. And we want you to make sure that you avail yourself of our website. Uh, as Matt had mentioned, we are actually uh, revamping our website to make things easier for you to find, share it with your networks. We want to hear your thoughts. Um, please email us at info at upstreamsolutions.org if you have any questions or any qu inquiries about how policy could get shaped in your area. I know we have several members from our National Reuse Network and Government Reuse Forum here today, so thank you for joining. If you're not a member and you're interested in joining, please visit the links in our chat. As always, be sure to stay connected on news and upcoming events by visiting upstreamsolutions.org, signing up for our newsletter, or following us on social media. Our team works very hard on curating valuable resources and information to help support all of you in the great work that you're doing. So please also subscribe to the Indisposable podcast and hear from inspiring heroes like the ones you heard from today in this movement. We're wishing everyone a happy and healthy holiday season. And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review, talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway. <laughs>